0: Several things occur in Acts chapter 1 that set up the well-known events of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But don't make the mistake that the content of this chapter is only an ellipse or a placeholder positioned with its only purpose to get the story further down the road. Acts chapter 1 includes the often neglected account of Jesus' ascension into the heavens. Welcome to episode 43, Acts chapter 1. You're going the wrong way. This is Greg Hall, and I'm glad you've joined me as we pick apart and maybe present a different perspective on Acts chapter 1. And before we get to the content, I've got an update on my recording environment. Now... (laughs) I know most of you probably don't care about where I record these episodes, but I've recorded most of them in our house at a table in our upstairs bonus room. It's a big room and the acoustics honestly weren't that great. Well, last week I was discussing with my publisher, (laughs) that even sounds weird, the possibility of an audiobook from my Rethinking Rest book that's coming out later this year or the next year. And as it turns out, I can record the audio version myself. And while I was thinking about recording, I also determined that right off that bonus room where I have been recording, there's a little five by 10 closet. And I thought, you know, that little room would have better acoustics for such a project. So last week, I moved into my new digs, (laughs) literally 20 feet away from where I was before. And I installed sound dampening foam foam all over the place. And this little closet, it has a slanted ceiling, and I've placed a four-by-six carpet version of Da Vinci's Last Supper right there on the ceiling. It's a truly amazing piece of artwork, which is on loan from one of my friends, Isaac. And to be honest, I think he had to take it down when he got married. It's that beautiful. Well, all that said, the sound is really good in this little studio. And I'm really excited about my new digs. It's my own little version of the upper room. See what I did there? Thank you, Isaac, for that. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to some pictures. And I may even do a little video tour of the space that won't last more than 10 seconds. (laughs) Well, enough of that update. I look forward to getting working on that project in the summer months ahead. But let's head back into the book of Acts Because today we're looking at Acts chapter 1. And I feel like it's this chapter that is the forgotten child of the first few chapters of the book. There's been so much emphasis on the second chapter of Acts, the Pentecost story, that it seems like people skip right over the first 26 verses of the book. So are there any of you second children out there that get more attention than the first in your family? That's the case, I think, here. But let's not forget the highlights of this particular chapter. First, we've got red letters in chapter 1. That doesn't happen in chapter 2. It happens a few more times throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and obviously the Gospels have red letters, the words of Jesus. But here in Acts chapter 1, we get a visit and words from Jesus. Second, as I mentioned, the ascension is recorded in this chapter. Jesus being lifted up while the apostles are looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And we'll talk more about the significance of the ascension in this episode. But let me just say here that the ascension is in the top five events found in the whole Bible. Well, I haven't actually made a list, but the ascension has got to be right up there with, let's say, the creation, the exodus out of Egypt, the incarnation, the resurrection. There you go. There's your top five. And third, just when you thought you were done. It's in this chapter that the apostles choose Matthias to replace Judas's vacancy as an apostle. It's right there at the end of chapter 1. And while Matthias is never mentioned again after this chapter, his presence here has a definite significance and a role in the overall story. If I've not mentioned it before, you need to know that I believe Luke is a masterful author. I mean, he organized these two books, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, so well. And I'm honestly sad that most people don't ever realize what he's done. Not only has he coordinated the two books, Luke and Acts, in parallel structure—we talked about that a little bit in the last episode—but Luke also reaches back into the Old Testament and presents the transition from Jesus to the apostles with clever hints and links back to previous prophecies. I've been listening to the Theopolis podcast, and I would recommend it. It is really good. And two years ago, in May of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, they began working through the book of Acts. I'll put a link in the show notes to episode 330, where they discuss some of the connections between Acts and its Old Testament counterparts. And I won't get into most of what they discuss, but I will mention the following use of the number 40. I think it's really interesting. So first, let's mention that Luke uses numbers to hearken back to other biblical stories. In Acts 1, verse 3, he mentioned that Jesus presented himself alive over a period of 40 days before his ascension. And we all know that there are other times the number 40 comes up in the biblical account. Sometimes the number is associated with exile. There's the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and its counterpart in the New Testament, the 40 days that Jesus is tested in that same wilderness environment. So periods of 40 are presented as a preparation for what's coming next. That's true for those first two examples. For Israel in the desert, their 40 years was also a time of preparation for entering the land. And for Jesus, his 40 days of testing in the wilderness set a stage for the beginning of his public ministry in that same land. But there's another period of 40 that is often not recognized from our modern cultural perspective. And it's because it has to do with the book of Leviticus. And we all know how much we love to study Leviticus. And while we might not like going back there, that's exactly where Luke takes us in the beginning of his gospel. I'm just turning here to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, where we see that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. That's a clear number in the text, and that's according to the directions back in Leviticus 12.3. But then in the next verse, Luke says, And when the days for their purification were complete, they brought him, meaning Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The days for their purification. That also refers back to Leviticus chapter 12. It was a period of 33 days that began on the day of the circumcision. So, let's do the math. If you add the first seven days of an Israelite boy's life, to the 33 days set out for the purification ritual, we know that Jesus's presentation at the temple as a baby is associated with another period of 40 days. And it's the 40 days after his birth in Luke chapter 2 that the author parallels with the 40 days in Acts chapter 1, the 40 days after Jesus's rebirth out of the grave. And what do these two events have in common? They are both a preparation for something. Both prepare Jesus for his presentation at temples. As a baby, he was presented in the earthly temple after 40 days. And here in Acts chapter 1, his 40 days precedes his ascension and his entrance into the heavenly temple. But let's turn that statement around a bit. Let's not say that it's a time of preparation for Jesus, because really, who's being prepared during this time? It's the world. The 40 days is a preparation for the world to acknowledge and receive Jesus within the sacred space of temples. As a baby, it was the spirit-filled Simeon and Anna the prophetess who first recognized Jesus for who he was. And at his ascension in Acts chapter one, all we are told is that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud received him out of the sight of the apostles. Then two men in white clothing stood by the apostles, and they announced, verse 11, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What does that even mean? Well, it's talking about With the clouds, these two men that most have concluded are angels because of the description of their white clothing, they let the apostles know that Jesus would come in just the same way. And I know what you're thinking. You think those two men are talking about Jesus's return to earth. You think they're talking about his second coming. If that's what you've always thought about this passage— it's time to pull over to the side of the road right now. It's time to step off the treadmill. Or if you're working in the kitchen with sharp knives, put those down and step away from the cutting board. It's time to read the statement of those two men, those angels, in its original context. And it has nothing to do with Jesus coming back to earth. As I record this, I'm in my early 50s. Uh, Some people think I'm in my mid-50s. I'm not quite sure what 53 is, but it's on the first half of my 50s. Let's just say that. And because of my age and the time I grew up, I love quoting 1980s movies. And for somebody my age, those movies are just, they're in our wheelhouse. And I don't know if you've ever seen the 1987 film Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, It stars Steve Martin and John Candy. And interestingly enough, a young 20-something Kevin Bacon is also in this movie. So that's a one-degree example of Bacon's Law, or maybe it's a zero-degree. For those of you not aware, there's a whole thing about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're not familiar with it. In one scene in this movie, though, John Candy is driving late at night in an automobile on a highway. And Steve Martin, he's riding shotgun, and he's taking a nap. <laughs> he's really tired. And there turns up another motorist that just starts frantically waving at them. And John Candy thinks they want to race. Here, I'm going to play a little audio clip from this part of the movie. Hey, right, what's going on? Some joker wants to race. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! You're going the wrong way! We're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you, thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. They're going in the wrong direction. Well, you may have guessed. Their car it was traveling the wrong direction on the freeway. The other car, the one yelling at him, was across the median, and those people were traveling the right direction. And as silly as that scene is, I suspect every one of us, let's be honest, has at one time or another traveled the wrong direction on a one way street. That is an awful feeling, especially when you first realize it. And unfortunately, that's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Jesus is heading one direction, and most of us are going the wrong way. We're heading in the wrong direction when we read this passage. Jesus is leaning out the window and telling us to turn our perspective around. But how would he know where we're going? (laughs) And as much as I would love to stretch this analogy out even further, now is probably a good time to get back to the text and just start to rethink what might be going on there. So, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, it says that Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's verse 9. So, to be clear, at the end of verse 9, it appears that Jesus is no longer visible. He's disappeared into the clouds. Now, there are some grammarians that look at the Greek text and suggest that the elements of these three verses could be switched around into a different order. So I'm not going to camp on that, but at least the way that it most naturally presents is that by the end of verse 9, Jesus has already disappeared. And I think the text kind of backs that up as we go. Because the next verse says, As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. So Jesus is taken up into the clouds in verse 9, and the apostles continue to look into the sky while he was going, is what it says. Jesus hasn't reappeared at that point. He's just continuing going. Jesus disappeared, and he continued going. But there's more to it than that, because the Greek word for sky here is used four times in verses 10 and 11. And depending on your English translation, sometimes the translation is split. So the NASB, which is the translation from which I usually read, it says the apostles were gazing into the sky. And then in verse 11, the two men said to them, why do you stand looking into the sky? Just going to read a note uh, by Newman and Nida out of the handbook on the Acts of the Apostles. They say this on the sky, that verbiage in verse 10, and at the sky, verse 11, and into heaven in verse 11, all translate the same expression literally into the heaven. But they point out that the Greek word for heaven may be used either as an abode of God, that is what we understand as heaven. Or merely as the sky. Jesus is taken into heaven, whereas the disciples gaze up into the sky. And they say that for many languages, there is simply no distinction between the physical sky and the abode of God. When there is no distinction in terminology, it is quite unnecessary to try to translate heaven always as the place where God lives. In a context such as this, the term for sky will normally serve quite well for both heaven and sky. So, breaking away from Newman and Nida, the Greek words translated sky and the Greek word for heavens, they're the exact same Greek word. The NASB and also the NIV have chosen to split it into sky and heaven with two different translations. But other English translations like the ESV and the New King James, they just translate everything as heaven. And neither translating decision is wrong. The word can mean sky or it can refer to heaven depending on the context. And the thing we miss in the English is the double meaning. The apostles were looking into the sky the whole time, but in their cosmic worldview, they were also looking toward heaven. And that point is followed in the text by the two men, the angels, saying this, This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now notice, and here's a perspective change possibly for you. It does not say that Jesus will return to earth in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. It's not what the text says. It says he will come in just the same way. And it may seem that they are referring to coming back to where they currently are on the earth. That may seem natural. That's the way maybe you've been taught to read this. But the men that are speaking are not from earth. They are from the heavenly realm. And there's an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Daniel to which the men are referring that describes this same event, the ascension of Jesus, but it's from the heavenly perspective. So let's break away from Acts and just talk about the book of Daniel for a second. Most people are only familiar with about half of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters, and that's because those chapters are mostly narrative, and they give us some great and memorable stories. I mean, Daniel interpreting the king's dreams, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel in the lion's den. All those stories come from the first six chapters of Daniel. And that's where Vacation Bible School stops. But then there are chapters 7 through 12 that are mostly prophecy and visions, and they're full of symbolism. And these chapters get a little more complicated. And it's Daniel's vision in chapter 7 that speaks directly to Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1. Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and he wrote them down. And in one of the visions, Daniel sees the throne room in heaven, the heavenly temple, where the Ancient of Days, which is a term for God the Father, takes his seat on one of the thrones in that room. Then, from the same perspective, in the throne room in heaven, Daniel records this in verse 13 and following of chapter 7. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, breaking away from the text, in his vision, Daniel who is in heaven, sees the Son of Man character coming. How is he coming? With the clouds of heaven. He's appearing through the clouds. That means he's ascending into the throne room where he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. In the context of Daniel chapter 7, the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds only happens in one direction, and it's up. He is not descending to the earth. That's where he's coming from. But in this vision, the Son of Man is coming through the clouds up into heaven. And you might ask, who is the Son of Man character? Well, the Jews of Jesus' day understood this character from the Old Testament to be the promised Messiah. And the New Testament ascribes this title to Jesus in multiple texts. It's all over the place in the Gospels. And Jesus refers to himself using this title often. From a New Testament perspective, Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. The Greek version of that is he's the Christ. And the scene that Daniel describes is Jesus' presentation at the heavenly temple after a 40-day waiting period. It's as if we see the first half of the ascension from the earthly perspective, the perspective of the disciples, in Acts chapter 1. That's the first half. And then we see the second half of the same scene from the heavenly perspective, the perspective of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Both of those texts are describing different parts of the exact same event. In his book *The Apocalypse Code*, Hank Hanegraaff says this about Daniel 7:13 and 14. It's under the subheading of "Coming with the clouds is ascending, not descending." Panagraph says this, this is the passage to which Jesus alludes in several New Testament passages. Daniel sees a vision of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Here, Christ is clearly not descending to the earth in his second coming, but rather ascending to the throne of the Almighty in vindication and exaltation. And breaking away from Hanegraaff's statement there, there are texts all throughout the New Testament that talk about Jesus as this son of man character. But there is one text that I'd like to focus on to close out today's episode. Because this is a place where Jesus not only refers to himself as the son of man, but he does so while quoting the Daniel chapter seven passage. And so as we look at this example, what we're going to see is Jesus not only referring to himself as the son of man, but also mentioning this coming on clouds and him suggesting when that coming on clouds was going to be realized here on earth. And it's really interesting the way he frames it. i going to turn over to the gospel of Mark now in chapter 14, verse 62. And this is near the end, right before the crucifixion for Jesus. And he is standing before his accusers, the high priest, The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they've all gathered together. Peter's following at a distance. We see that in verse 54. And they are in the courtyard of the high priest. People are giving all kinds of false testimony about Jesus at this time, saying, hey, he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild another one in three days. But those testimonies weren't even consistent, the text says. And then in verse 60, the high priest stood up came forward and questioned Jesus. And he just asked a question, do you know the answer? And it just says, Jesus kept silent, didn't answer. But again, the high priest was questioning him and said to him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And this is where Jesus speaks up, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see. Now listen, This is where he quotes Old Testament scripture and refers to himself as the Son of Man, talking to the high priest, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The first part of that is a reference to Psalm 110, where we get the information that Jesus will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. But it's the second part of Jesus' statement that uses this expression, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he's suggesting that that ruling council that was alive there would see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's a clear reference back to the Son of Man vision in Daniel chapter 7. And how do we know that they understood that Jesus was talking about that? Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So what Jesus does here is very clever. He combines these two passages, Psalm 110, Daniel seven thirteen, But it's the way Jesus presents this to those rulers in front of him you shall see. That is a plural you. He's not just talking to the high priest. He's talking to the rulers of the earthly temple. And he says to them, you folks are going to see maybe not the same vision that Daniel did, but you'll see the results of that event taking place. And those results will be felt here on earth. So in one sense, he didn't mean that the rulers there that day would be up in heaven to witness his arrival and presentation in the heavenly temple. But in another sense, the one that Jesus meant, it's that high priest and his cohorts that certainly did see the results of that event. And what were the results? Within 40 years, the earthly temple was destroyed and the high priest and the scribes, Pharisees, they all lost their job. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. It was a major part of his teaching while on earth. And it was that event that was a result of Jesus coming on the clouds into the heavenly temple. He received dominion and a kingdom, and he removed the authority of those who had decided to put him to death. Well, I invite you to reemerge from the rabbit hole we just went down. And let's close today's episode with just a a revisit to verse 11 in Acts chapter 1. It's where these two angels are talking to the apostles who have just seen Jesus disappear into the clouds. And let me reimagine what they might be saying by just changing the emphasis of their last statement a little bit. They said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky, into heaven? This Jesus who has just been taken up from you into the sky, he will come in just the same way as you have watched him go. And how was that? It was in the clouds. They're inviting the apostles to imagine the scene from Daniel chapter 7 happening right before them as the angels were speaking, Jesus, after his 40-day waiting period, was presented at the heavenly temple. And it's a beautiful example of how Luke parallels periods of 40 in his two books as he tells the story of how Jesus and his teachings spread throughout the world. Well, that's all I've got for today. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to marching in to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is coming. And as you might imagine, I have some opinions about what was going on. Well, we'll see you next time. And if you have a chance between now and then, please take some time to rate, review, and definitely would you please remember to recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.